The preaching of God's Word is from Psalm 51 and verse 1. As it is in our English, we have it written, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Well, last week we considered the first part of the psalm, what is here before us in the title, how this psalm of David records the fruit of that work of God through Nathan, that the Lord had sent Nathan, the prophet, to confront David in his sin. And though it is not, of course, an enjoyable experience to be confronted because of our sin, yet it proved to be a most blessed experience, as we see here, it brought David to turn from his sin and look only to God in his mercy. To be confronted by our sin is a sobering thing. We know many, of course, perhaps we ourselves can ex- testify of experiences where we've been confronted by our sin and we've sort of shoved it aside and not worried about it. We've gone to others, perhaps handed them a tract, and have pleaded with them to consider their sin. We've spoken with some, and instead of, as it were, the confrontation bringing forth conviction, it brought forth, whether temporary or everlasting, a hardening. That's not a sobering thing. But it is sobering when confrontation brings about conviction. That's what's taken place in David's life. David was confronted And it brought forth conviction. Such conviction as gripped him and made him, as it were, realize the depth of what he had done. You remember when Nathan came to him and told him this parable of a man who had but one lamb and that was ripped from him. And David, in rage, said, that man, not the man who had the sheep, but the one who took it, is to die. And Nathan said, thou art the man, you're worthy of death. It gripped him. and He confessed his sin. Now, each of us will also know that when convinced of our sin, it doesn't always immediately issue in a gracious approach to God. You can see this, of course, in the life of Judas Iscariot. He became convinced that his sin was indeed wicked. There's no denying it. He acknowledged it. He takes the money that was the uh, money for Uh, betraying Christ, he brings it to those who gave it to him and said, this is wrong, and they won't take it. And so he casts it in. And he's grieved and overwhelmed and engulfed in his sorrow and the conviction of his sin. But it's not a gracious conviction. It's one that does much work in his soul. And yet its fruit is hopelessness. And he, seeing as much, hangs himself as his own murderer. And in his sin enters into that lasting judgment. Whereas here, David, who is guilty of undeniable sin, is brought to a gracious approach. And you'll notice David, guilty of vile sin, which we need not rehearse at present as we considered it last time, is brought by grace to the right plea. And if you search through this psalm, the entirety of it, You don't see him saying, if you do this, then I'll give you that. If you do this, then I'll do this. 
You should do this because of what I've done before. You should do this because my sin's not a big deal. You should do this because, well, it's good to be done. David comes solely and squarely to rest his hope upon God's mercy. And it's profuse, his plea. Notice the first verse, Have mercy upon me. And then he goes further, According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies. Three expressions which are related and synonymous, but giving different nuance again and again and again. All of it having to do with God's great kindness and condescension and His great mercy to show compassion and forgive sins. And it's this appeal to the Lord's mercy that, as it were, strengthens his hope because as he addresses his hope, the mercy of God, the loving kindness of God, the multitude of God's tender mercies, it's then that he actually makes his specific request. Blot out my transgressions. It's interesting. He doesn't start with blot out my transgressions. That would, of course, be fine and acceptable. We can approach God in such a way. But there is instruction here. He's actually making a previous, a a, a fundamental appeal first, which is, Lord, have mercy on me. Because my appeal for you to blot out my transgressions can have no other cause but your mercy. No other moving factor but your grace. There's nothing else that I can point to that would say, this is why you should forgive me. You can go back to school days when perhaps you're playing a game with your friends and you're thinking about this and people are lined up who you're going to choose and people will say, choose me because. Or you have a group and they say, choose that person because he's faster. Choose that person because you know she's more able at this, that, or the other thing. And so there's thoughts about the qualities that the person would bring to bear in this game. Well, in this realm of pardon, there's no appeal. There's no cause in us. There's only cause in God. God, you who are merciful, you who abound in a multitude of tender mercies. Because of that, have mercy upon me. There's tremendous guidance, of course. David was a believer. And yet he was, as we use the phrase, one who had backslidden. We ought never to think that backsliding is just the normal course of a believer. There's no reason that we should think, well, you know, if I'm a believer, I'm going to have my seasons of backsliding. There are seasons where certain Christians will have that, and certainly every Christian will have a season wherein they sin and so on. But David was representative of a tremendous step backwards. It wasn't just an occasion, you'll remember. This was a great season of his descending from the heights of attainments that he had once known. And as you look at David, you see the misery of such a state for a Christian. It's not something we say, well, you know, everyone slides back. Everyone sort of slips and has their problems and don't make a big deal of it. No, it's quite the opposite. It is a massive issue if we find ourselves in such a position. You remember that Christ comes to the angel of the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2, 
and he commends their orthodoxy, he commends their discernment of saying, you know, you, you've searched out and you find out these false teachers and you put them out. And yet he says, yet I have somewhat against thee. What is it? It's that you have left your first love. It's not that they've left it entirely. It's that they've left off the fervency, the zeal. They've slidden back. And so he says, well, you know, everyone goes through that. And it's not a big deal, just sort of get back on the path. No, he says, repent and do the first works, lest I come and remove your lampstand from you. If we find ourselves in a state of having slidden backwards from the attainments of faith and hope and love, this is not something of, well, a common experience. It's deplorable, as was David's. The importance of this is to see, as Christians need to see, It's not just a natural experience. We ebb and flow, and so when we've ebbed, we'll necessarily flow. It's not a natural thing. If we find ourselves having slidden backwards, we should find ourselves with great conviction and a great sense that I can't get myself back to where I need to be. The only hope for the backslidden one is, as David here articulates, the mercy of God. And chief above all else is the need that the backslidden one has for forgiveness. Believers who are forgiven need forgiveness for their daily sins. You know, some people have this notion of, quote, eternal justification. It's biblical nonsense. You think of what Christ says. He says, he teaches us, we're to pray, forgive us our debts, right? Our debts, our daily debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We are justified by grace through faith. We are declared righteous, but as Christ said to Peter, you know, you are whole, but you still need your feet cleansed. There's still a need for forgiveness for daily sins. And so when we discover sins in our lives, we don't sort of rest and say, well, you know, not a big deal. No, we again appeal and apply to The mercy of God in Christ. Notice, this is the believer's only plea. This is anyone's only plea to be accepted with God and restored unto fellowship with Him. Well, let's look at two things. Firstly, why mercy is the only plea. And secondly, why mercy is a sound plea, the good plea. So firstly, why mercy is the only plea? You can see it throughout the psalm and certainly in the title that we considered last time. The first reason that mercy is the only plea is because of the nature of sin. It's interesting, there are synonyms galore throughout this psalm, both of God's mercy as well as sin. So if you just scan through, you'll see, for instance, in verse 1, there is blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So there are these multiplied expressions getting at the essence of one thing. The same is with God's mercy. It's once, it's loving kindness, it's mercy, it's multitude of tender mercies, it's compassions, and so on. Well, the word in our text this afternoon is transgressions. Now, the word is rooted in one, meaning rebellion or revolt. You can sort of conceive of this 
if someone with authority were to draw a line in the sand and say, don't cross that line. And the one who's on the side of the line looks at the one who's given the command and boldly steps across. That's not an accident. It's a revolt. Don't do this. Well, if you're telling me not to do that, I'll just go ahead and do it. That's the nature of sin. Sin is rebellion. It's a revolt. And this is something we need to realize. When we sin, we are taking up, as it were, a position of rebellion against God. It's not an accident. It's interesting, in our family's readings, we've been working through some portions of the Old Testament. And you'll know, of course, that the Bible speaks of sins of ignorance. And so, for instance, when under the Old Covenant, there were sins committed ignorantly. Think of that that expression. Not knowing, without understanding. They didn't realize that what they had done was contrary to God's revealed will. God doesn't say, not a big deal, get past it. He says they need to offer an offering, a sacrifice, that their sin, though they had done it in ignorance, would be atoned for. Do you understand that our ignorance is no excuse? Because the Lord has given us means to discern His way. In fact, were He to take the Bible from us, each of us has the work of God's law inscribed upon our hearts, Paul says it this way, that that which may be known of God is clearly manifested to us through the things which are made. In other words, the things which are made testify clearly of the propriety of absolute devotion, obedience, and service to God. And every even minimal departure from that is not a slip, it's not an accident, it's a revolt against what is clearly manifested. Now we live in days, of course, where men, women, and children have calloused themselves and have uh, put on all sorts of hardness of heart against God so that we see uh, a deplorable state in our day. And yet what Paul is saying in his day, as in days before and since, is that men know the truth. They don't know it savingly. They don't know it with love. But they know they ought to honor the God who made them. They know they ought to love their neighbor who's made in their image. They know they ought to refrain from profanity with their speech. They know they ought to uh, refrain from stealing from others. These things are clear. God has made it known to them. They know they ought to give homage and honor to the Creator of the universe. All of these things are elementary kindergarten lessons that God has given to the whole of humanity. Now, the Bible makes clear He hasn't made known through creation or the conscience or the law written on our hearts, the work of the law written on our hearts. He hasn't made known in those ways the remedy to our sins. He hasn't made known in those ways the way of pardon. But He has made known the essence of our duty. And so when it is that from an infant we go astray, that's not excusable. It's a testimony of sin. And in fact, David will get to this when he says, I was shapen in iniquity. It's instructive, isn't it? He doesn't blame his original sin. He confesses his original sin. He acknowledges as deplorable the beginning of himself in a state of sin. Why is that? Because the one who is truly convicted 
realizes that he is a rebel against God. Why is that significant? Well, against whom is the transgression committed? It's against God. God who is nothing but good. In fact, remember when Jesus said, why do you call me good? None is good but God. Now, of course, as you know, he's not saying, I'm not God. He's directing and challenging this man to sort of say, do you really know who it is you're speaking to? But embedded in that expression is such a clarity of understanding that when we look at things rightly, we can look at everyone in the world and say, you know what? When I see what they are, however relatively better they are than other people, when I contrast them with God, I'm left with this conclusion. God only is good. Comprehensively, absolutely, perfectly so. He never has had evil thoughts or evil inclinations. He's never done what is wrong. He never even tempts others with sin, as James tells us. Such is his purity, his goodness. He gives good things. He provides kind things to us. And what he commands is good. If you have children or grandchildren, you can perhaps entertain this more fully, but it doesn't take that. Think of this for a moment. If you were there thinking of your child who's about to get married, and whether son or daughter, it doesn't matter, and you're thinking down the line, you know, every newly married couple realizes a bit that there are going to be trials ahead of them. They don't realize what those are going to be, and they don't realize how difficult they are going to be. They realize enough to know, yeah, we'll have trouble. Now, you're standing there as a parent, you're looking at them, and if the one your, your son or daughter was marrying looked at you and said, you know what, I know we're going to have trials and I'm open to committing adultery. I'm open to that. You know, I'm, I'm thinking, in fact, it's just going to happen. I'm going to do that. You would stop all the proceedings and you would say, this is obscene. Why would you do that? Why would you revolt against that notion? Because what that person has just said is understandably a wicked thing that will cause great harm to your child, great harm to their relationship, great harm to children if they have children, and to other people as well. It festers and it multiplies. Here's the point. There's never a sin which is justifiable or good. Never once has there ever been such a thing as a white lie. There's never been a white lie. There's never been a justifiable sin. Every sin is deplorable. Every sin opens up a world of iniquity that were it not for God's mercy and His sovereignty, it would overtake everything and consume it in its wickedness. Now, if that's true in our relationship with a child, think of this for a moment. How much more is it true in our relationship with God? When we've sinned against God, who is only good, we realize that you know a husband and wife are going to have their struggles. A husband's never going to be the perfect husband they should be. And there are going to be times when they provoke their wife. And a wife is never going to be the perfect spouse she ought to be. There are going to be times when she provokes 
her husband. In fact, whenever there's been a falling out in a marriage, anyone sort of not invested in it can step back and say, okay, here's the guilty party, here's the inexcusable thing, but I do see how the other contributed. I do see how this one did things that were you know, provocative and so on. It doesn't excuse the sin. It doesn't mean that both are equally culpable, but we can see that. Here's the point. With reference to God, God has never done anything that has provoked us unto sin. He's never done anything that someone could step back and say, you know what, I get it. I don't justify it. I don't say it was right, but I get it. I mean, who would want to serve that God? Could you imagine saying that? Who would want to serve that God? Why would anyone not want to serve that God? Why would anyone not want to devote their life absolutely to following the God who is, who is good, who is holy, who is just? When one revolts against God, it testifies of the great wickedness within them. Mercy is the only plea, not just because of the nature of sin, but because, we can say it this way, of the one who committed the sin. Notice what David says. He says, blot out my transgressions. He doesn't say, forgive sin. He doesn't say, forgive sins. He says, blot out my transgressions. This is something that truly convinced one will acknowledge. It's not sin abstracted. It's sin personally committed. I sinned. Do you remember Luke 18? In the parable Christ presents, and it would have been quite astounding, of course, when He presents a Pharisee who was devoted to the law of God and a publican who everyone at first glance would have said, he's the bad one. And in some sense, they were right. But he sets up the Pharisee. You know the story. He goes then to the publican. And what does the publican say? He says, God be merciful, literally. God be propitious to me. What? A sinner. And actually more strong than that in the Greek. The sinner. God be propitious to me, the sinner. What's being said? It's not just someone, something. It's not just sin that needs the, uh, being dealt with. It's the fact that the sin is mine. I imagine that you and I have seasons when we are caught by those stories of you know, children who get cancer and things of that sort. These are tremendously weighty stories. Some of us know families who have been tremendously impacted by that. And yet none of us who have not gone through that would have the audacity to say to such a family, I know what you're going through. Because we don't. We can empathize, we can sort of try to get into it, and we can make ourselves available to support and so on. But to have the grief of knowing that your infant is struck with leukemia or something else of that sort. Your infant is the one who's in the ICU and all of that. That's something that you have to go through fully to understand. It's the parents in those situations who know what's going on. Well, brethren, that's of a misery, of course, that is difficult. 
a misery that is unspeakable in many ways. But here's the bigger issue. Each of us has committed sin, which opens the world of misery, and it's our doing. It's mine. It's not like you walk through the, you know, the, 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 the ward in the hospital and here's the NICU and you can see all these children and they're just faces to you and perhaps a name and you sort of pass on your way and say, well, that was difficult. The fact is, this issue is yours. It's mine. It's not a thing. It's my thing. This is what David's getting at. He says, blot out my transgressions. And notice this actually gets repeated in verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. I sinned, verse 4. And it goes on. What's he getting at? It's not abstract. It's personal. It's mine. I've done it. I'm liable. I'm open. It's me. I've done the sin. All of this rebellion, all of this wickedness is mine. That means I am open to judgment. I am guilty. I stand at the bar of justice. We can be moved by stories of those who are brought to the bar of justice and They're convinced, you know, what I did was wrong and all of those things. But how much more different is it if it's you or I at the bar of justice? You know, we can try and through narrative and through storytelling and through historians, we can sort of enter into what it must have felt like. But until we're the ones standing there, oh, how can we fully know? Well, here David doesn't leave it in abstract. He owns it as his. And so he's realizing, I need mercy. It's not abstract to him. It's personal. And this is because he realizes what sin deserves. The wages of sin is death. Why is mercy the only plea? Because David knows he's the guilty party. He's the one who's done it. And so he's the one who must answer for it. And he doesn't have the power to do it. Well, brethren, this is the same for all who have committed sin. But why is it, secondly, that mercy is the sound plea, the good plea, the only good plea? Well, firstly, because notice, it is God's mercy. It's the God against whom we've sinned, and so only God is able to deal with our transgression. He's the one against whom we've transgressed, he's the one who has the ability to deal with our transgression. And notice as David says this, he appeals to God. Have mercy upon me, O God. Just as an aside, you'll notice there is zero appeal in any of the Scriptures, and certainly here, to others than God for dealing with our sins. There was a woman who once came up to me and she's Roman Catholic, and she pulled out this chain with some saint on it and said, I got this from this site in, whether it was Italy or France or Spain, I can't remember. And she was giddy with excitement because whoever it was on that chain was some patron saint 
that was able to help her with the forgiveness of her sins. Brethren, this is not something ancient. It's not something way back in history. It's not from the 1500s and the 1600s and so on. It's today. People have hope that someone other than God will show mercy to forgive sin. But try as you might, you search through the Scriptures, and there is zero testimony of the same. David's plea for mercy is a mercy, is a plea to God for His mercy. And it's not even this sort of assistance, you know, you know Mother uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, Mary, would you pray that God would give me mercy? You don't find that kind of thing in Scripture. There is a direct appeal to God for His mercy. Now that may seem bold, and in some sense it is. That we should come to the One against whom we've sinned and ask Him for it. But here's the point. We're asking Him for the mercy which is His. We're not appealing to Him to do something that's outside of His purview. We're actually approaching Him to do what He has held forth to us as His delight to do. Do you remember in Exodus 34 such a passage as, if not memorized, is well worth memorizing when Moses is there set in the cleft of the rock and the Lord proclaims the name of the Lord. Think of this. What is the name of the Lord? What is it by which you and I should know God? You know, someone calls your name in a crowd. You, you hear it. and You turn and you look. You can be out of state and you're in a crowd and you hear your name and you sort of wonder, who knows me here? Now, they might be calling someone else by the same name, but it gets your attention. Notice, what's the name of the Lord? The Lord, the Lord God, verse 6, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, and so on. The Lord is holding this out saying, you want to know my name? It is made known in my mercy, my grace, the abundance of this kindness. This is who I am. This is what I want you to know about me. Yes, I'm just. Yes, I'm holy. And you'll see that testified elsewhere. But never forget that I have made known to you that I am a merciful God. And so when David comes to uh, the Lord God Himself and says, have mercy upon me, it's not presumptuous. It's not the air of arrogance that's overtaken David. It's actually humility and faith coming to God according to His Word and said, you've said that you will be merciful. And so I come to you according to your Word and I say, be merciful to me. It's your mercy. It's astounding, isn't it, that Hebrews tells us that we're to come boldly to the throne of grace. Christ is seated there And we're to come boldly. In the the Greek, it's we're to come with many words. Our mouths are to be full with a readiness to pour out our requests that we may find mercy to help in time of need. The disclosure of God's kindness is to be a tremendous encouragement to us when convinced in sin. And you know, this is what Satan loves to set aside. He loves to point out, you know, it's, he's a master of deception. And so, leading up to sin, what does he say? It's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. You know, other people do it. It's just a little thing. Don't worry about it. And our hearts are so ready to believe that lie. And then we commit the sin, boom, and instantly, what is it? The story now changes. Look what you've done. 
You are inexcusably wicked. God will never receive you. Look how horrid. How could you do such a thing? You have no hope. And now we're ready to believe the liar again. David committed tremendous sin. We don't know the Lord's secret purposes, but we can say one thing that David helps us with in the Lord's providence He wasn't guilty of a little sin. He was guilty of adultery. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty of trying to cover all of it. These are deplorable things. And yet, in the deplorable sin, he approaches God for his mercy. It's God's mercy. And God has shown to us, he delights in showing mercy. It is his great perfection to show mercy as he discloses his name to us. Why else is it a good plea? There's almost a parallel here. Perhaps even in the Hebrew it's stronger. But you'll see it in the English. In verse 1, David appeals to thy loving kindness and the multitude of thy tender mercies, which he then contrasts with my transgressions. You see that? So he leads with the statement of what's true of God, God's mercy, God's loving kindness, the multitude of his tender mercies, and so on. Here's that. And then he puts his transgressions. So this is what is God's. This is what is mine. Now, if you think of that for a moment, when you come face to face with your sin, and it's no longer on the side of, I'm entertaining this, I'm going to think about it, Oh, the delight, the pleasure, the fun, excitement, and all of that stuff. But when you're on the other side of it, and it's weighing down heavily, and you feel the burden, the shame engulfing, you say, what have I done? What kind of wickedness? Oh, what foolishness that I should do this against God. It's then that our sins, which at first seem so small, what's the big deal? Now are seen in something more of the magnitude which they really possess. It's then that we realize how desperate our condition is and how desperately we require such grace as surpasses the greatness of our sin. God doesn't forgive sin because sin is little. God forgives sin because His mercy is great. So Paul writes of it, where sin abounded, think of that language, God's grace much more abounded. Notice what David's done for us in giving us this, and what God has done for us in giving us this psalm. Notice the expression, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. This multitude of His tender mercies, His compassions. A mother's compassion at times is astounding. You know, A father can lose their cool and they sort of go off in their heat of the moment. The mother can lose her cool as well and that kind of thing. But it's astounding, is it not, what a mother's compassion can do with children. And yet even a mother's compassion has an end. We don't deny that God's compassions have an end. But notice, before us, in the Word of God, is a testimony that His tender mercies are made up of a multitude There's a multitude of them. David's sin 
was grave and wicked. It was astounding, in many ways immeasurable, but his sins were no match for the multitude of God's compassions. You know, we've said before, mothers at times can overstep their compassions, and so they look at their child who's committed a crime, and they say, well, he's a good kid. Well, they've misstepped there. Not a good kid. If he's a good kid, he wouldn't have shot the person. If he's a good kid, he wouldn't have stolen the car. But there's sincerity when a mother sees their child who's guilty of a crime, however heinous, and feels the weight of that brokenness. That's a compassion. That's a sense of the misery. There's an entering into it. Oh, son, what have you done? What is it that you've done here? Well, there's something of that. It's not a perfect parallel, but there's something of that in God. God toward His children, God toward the penitent enters in. And our Lord Jesus Christ is touched by the feeling of our infirmities and He knows temptations and He's moved with compassion toward us. And what does that compassion do? Well, this abundant mercy, which is God's abundant mercy, is a forgiving mercy. Do you see it? This is David's plea. Have mercy according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, the abundance of thy compassions. What is it then that he requests? Blot out my transgressions. Oh, the audacity of that. You mean, David, you you want me to think that your adultery and your murder can just be wiped out? You want me to think that all of this heinous wickedness that has gone on for a season after I've privileged you with all that I could give, I raised you from the keeping of sheep and I've made you to be king over Israel. I've defeated your enemies. I've prospered your kingdom. And you come to me with this request, blotted off of your record? Well, brethren... It's not David making this up. It's actually God who's calling him to it. God is calling His people to appeal to Him in His mercy for the forgiveness of our sins. God is calling His people to look to God's mercy, kindness, and love and not be little with their sins, but to see what wickedness it is and to realize howsoever wicked it is To come unto God and say, Oh God, look what I've done. I am the sinner. What does the one in the parable say? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be propitious to me, the sinner. And Christ doesn't say, What a fool for thinking that his sins could be forgiven. Oh, how good the Pharisee was for pointing out all of his righteousness. No, Christ says, I tell you the truth, that man went to his home justified. Maybe you know what it is to have a, quote, record. Maybe you don't. Maybe you know what it is to have some inventory of issues. David had a very dark stain upon his record. And the word he uses, blot out, is a word that means wipe away. It's the idea of here it is, I can't wipe it away. But I come to you who is able to wipe it away. 
and I pray that you would do so. Now, of course, as we'll see, it is, verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. There's the need for the sacrificial blood, of course, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which cleanses. And yet, don't miss the point. David doesn't come to God and say, I'll cleanse myself if you just give me time. He doesn't come to God and say, I'll take care of it if you just give me help. He doesn't come to God and say, look what I'm doing. I'm trying to make it better. You hear the world speak of, you know, we're getting a chance to redeem ourselves. Brother, there's no such thing. You can't redeem yourself. You can't wash yourself of your sins. You don't have the power, the ability. You don't have the right to do it. You've sinned against God. But here's the good news. What you can't do, what you don't have the right to do, God is shown to be willing to do. And this is David's point. Show your mercy and blot out my transgressions. Do you remember what David heard Nathan say after he said, I've sinned. I'm guilty. Nathan said, the Lord hath put away your sin. He's wiped it off. It's no longer there. Now, he's going to be chastened, which reminds us that chastening is not the same as the Lord pouring out His vindictive wrath against His people. It's a purging and sanctifying work and so on. Here's the point. The Lord is pleased to forgive us our sins by His mercy. Brethren, here is, of course, perhaps reproof, perhaps help. When we become conscious of our sins, great or small, we're tempted at times to enter into a bargaining arrangement with God. And sometimes it's explicit. Sometimes we can catch ourselves praying things like, well, God, you know, forgive me and I'll. If you do this, then I'll. I'll do this, would you forgive me? Other times it's less so explicit and we find ourselves doing things. We get more diligent reading the Bible, which we ought to be more diligent reading the Bible. We get more diligent. I'm going to start memorizing Scripture. But if we start to assess it and analyze it, if we see rather the motivating principle is not love to God and gladness for His grace, but rather I'm going to do this so that God does this for me. We've entered into a bargaining arrangement with God which will not secure the peace of conscience which we desire. The way toward peace of conscience with God is by bringing our case before the Lord in all of its horror, in all of its ugliness, in all of its rebellion, to acknowledge the same as we'll see confessing it, but to appeal to God in His mercy, compassion, and love to blot out our transgressions. It seems impossible to find any other relationship where that's even slightly a hope. But the astounding thing is, with the greatest of relationships, it is the only hope. To come and say, I can't purchase anything, I can't do anything, not my repentance, my crying, my sighs, my obedience, none of it is able to wipe away the stain. And so I appeal to you in your mercy, O Lord, forgive me. For sin is against God. Only God can deal with this. And so we have to cast off all of our other attempts and rest upon the mercy of God in Christ alone. And brethren, once you do that, 
as you know if you're a believer, it's an astounding peace that grips, supports, sustains, and strengthens. I am forgiven solely by the mercy of God in Christ. So brethren, perhaps you've come and you sense your own sin. Here is guidance for you. But perhaps it is that you've come rejoicing that your sins are forgiven. Well, rejoice all the more because they were forgiven as you would acknowledge out of God's great mercy and kindness. And it's His mercy and kindness given freely that you would have your sins atoned for by the blood of Christ and enjoy His fellowship, not only in this life, but in the life to come. Would you stand with me?